Alrighty, if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Ezekiel. Um, we're going to be reading a, just a verse or two out of Ezekiel chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's fine, because I'm not going to be staying in that text. We are going to be jumping around to a few different texts this morning. But um, Ezekiel chapter 1, if you can, and let me just get my props ready, and these will be explained a little later. I thought I'd bring 99 red balloons, but... Uh, Sorry, I actually just thought of that right now. I did not script that. I just thought of that right now. If, if you're my age from, you know, 35 and older or maybe 40 and older, you'll know there's a pop song called 99 Red Balloons. But if you're younger than 35, you have no idea what I just said, so just ignore the last couple minutes of a waste of time. Let's get back into the Word of God. Amen. Jesus, thank you so much for this morning. We just pray, Lord God, for your blessing on this time in the Word. Thank you already, Father, for... Just an incredible sense of your manifest presence here with us, Lord. Just a wonderful time of worship we enjoyed, knowing and hearing, Lord God, the amazing testimony of your faithfulness, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are alive and seated at the Father's right hand and are just ministering grace and goodness and your faithfulness and your mercy over us every moment of every day. And I pray, Lord God, that as we get into, into the word this morning, Lord God, you would speak and release your goodness and love over us. And we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 1, I think, is probably, uh, probably takes the cake for uh, the passage of Scripture that is the most confusing passage of Scripture in all of, in all of the Bible. And we don't have time to work our way through the entire prophecy, but essentially what happens in Ezekiel chapter 1, um, verse 3, tells us that the hand of the Lord was upon Ezekiel, which speaks of God's manifest presence, God's anointing, God's grace, and is upon Ezekiel. And the Lord begins to speak to him and give him a vision for what the glory of God is like. And then in the next kind of 25 verses or so, Ezekiel begins to unpack this really crazy picture. <laughs> I'm going to do my best to summarize it in a couple sentences. Essentially what Ezekiel sees is this windstorm that is coming towards him, this windstorm of, of fire and lightning. And, and, uh, and in the middle of the storm are four human-like creatures. Each of the four creatures have four faces, the face of a man, the face of an ox, the face of an eagle, and the face of a lion. And each of these four creatures has, has four wings, uh, uh, wings of lightning and wings of fire. And already I know, if you're trying to picture this, I want you to try and picture this in your mind's eye. Uh, if you can't grasp it, that's okay. We're, I'll make the point in a few moments. But So you have these four creatures, four faces, four wings, light emanating everywhere. And then he goes on to describe, beside these four creatures are what he describes wheels within wheels, four gyroscopes, as it were. And it appears as if these gyroscopes are covered in diamonds because they're sparkling, but actually the closer he looks, it appears as if they are covered by eyes. Now, above all of this picture, above all of this vision that he has, he, uh, Ezekiel sees this, this massive dome, this massive crystal-like dome, which covers everything. And I love what the NIV does in describing this particular part. It says, it is, uh, it says it's sparkling like ice and awesome. I love that. I love the fact that Ezekiel, in this vision, has no better word to use than to say, God is awesome. If Chris Q was here, he would say something like, phenomenal. It is absolutely phenomenal, but he's, Chris is a friend of ours who loves using that phrase. And then above this crystal-like dome, he describes this magnificent blue sapphire throne 
on which is seated a towering figure. It looks like a man, and his, and his top half is, looks like glowing, burning metal, and his bottom half like fire, and light is emanating everywhere, like the, the, like the rainbow, like a beautiful, clear rainbow on a rainy day. And if you're trying to make sense of all of that, and I've just given you the best description that I can, good luck. Uh, unfortunately, verse 28, and that's the verse I want us to look at, verse 28 doesn't do much better in helping us understand exactly what, e- what Ezekiel was getting at. But you have to appreciate his honesty. Ezekiel says this, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. I love that. He doesn't say, this is the glory of God. He doesn't even say, this is the likeness of the glory of God. The best he can come up with is, this is the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And I think if we're honest, there are times when we find ourselves meditating on God, considering or, or contemplating who God is or, or what God is like or, or what God has said to us. Or, or there are times when, when people come to us and, and ask us questions about God, ask us to explain to them uh, who God is and what God is like. And if we're honest, sometimes the, 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 the best that we have, the, the most that we have to grab hold of is the appearance of the likeness of what God is like. You see, the point I'm trying to make in all of this is no one has ever, nor ever will anyone be able to completely figure God out intellectually. No one ever studied their way or reasoned their way into relationship with Jesus. God made himself known to us. God revealed himself to us purely and simply by the supernatural revelation that comes from the Holy Spirit. That's the point that Jesus was making in Matthew chapter 16, a passage that I'm sure many of us are familiar with. Jesus is talking with his disciples, and he says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And the disciples say, well, you know, perhaps you might, some people say you're John the Baptist who's come back to life, or, or, or some of the Old Testament prophets. Some people say you're, you're Jeremiah, or you are Elijah who has been raised from the dead and come back to life. You see, what they were doing was they were, they were saying, Jesus, this is what people have reasoned. This is what people have logically assumed you are like. And Jesus turns to them, and he, well, he turns to Peter, and he says, but, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter makes this remarkable statement. He says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus responds. He says, he says blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Can I just say as an aside, if, if you want to be blessed, if you want to live in the blessing of God, which I know I do, he has, a, he has, I think, is the key to live in the blessing of God. Live in the revelation, the supernatural revelation of who Jesus is. Live in the supernatural revelation of who Jesus is. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. Friends, we never find Jesus. One of my kind of silly favorite movies, you know we have those really epic favorite movies and then those silly favorite movies. One of my favorite silly movies is a movie called New in Town with Renee Zellweger. She is a businesswoman who comes from Los Angeles or Florida, I think it is, and down to to rural Minnesota in the winter to take over a dairy uh, factory. And she gets collected at the airport by her soon-to-be personal assistant, and they're driving to the factory in, 
uh, a blizzard, and the personal assistant turns to Renee Zellweger and says, can I ask you a personal question? Have you found Jesus? And Renee Zellweger says, no, I didn't know he was lost. That's just one of my favorite lines. It's a really silly line, but it's one of my favorite lines. The point is, we never found Jesus. That's the point I'm trying to say. We, we never found Jesus. Jesus found us. God pursued us. God came after us. God made himself known to us by revelation that comes from the Holy Spirit. The reality of the gospel for everyone here who has given their hearts to Jesus is simply this. We were once blind, but now we can see. And we didn't make ourselves, we didn't enable ourselves to see. We allowed the, we opened our hearts and the Spirit of God caused the eyes of our hearts to open up to the reality of who Jesus is. And that's one of the points that John makes in his gospel, John chapter 9. Don't turn there, but John chapter 9 kind of is this incredible story, this incredible account of a man who is born blind. He's blind from birth. And this conversation happens amongst the disciples as to whether, uh, who caused this man's blindness. And, and, and Jesus said, listen, it's not important. The point is that I want to heal this man. And, and so Jesus spits into the ground and he makes some mud from the dust and he, and he lathers the mud onto this man's eyes. And he tells him to, to go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And when he does so, he will see. And miraculously, that's what happens. This man goes and he, and he washes away his, his, his blindness. He's miraculously healed by Jesus. You would think if that would happen, there would be an incredible shout of celebration. But what happens is this uproar begins to take place in the, in the community. Firstly, his neighbors are incredibly skeptical and, and are full of unbelief. And they drag this poor man, this poor man who's been radically healed, they drag him before the religious leaders who are enraged and incensed that Jesus would have the audacity to heal a man who is blind. And they start arguing with him and asking him questions and demanding that they know who this Jesus is. They even bring his parents in. And what I find most shocking in that, in that account in John chapter 9 is his parents are completely indifferent. They want no part of this conversation. I was reading that this week, and it just started to remind me sometimes of some of the context or the environment that we might find ourselves in when we want to share Jesus with others. Sometimes when we share Jesus with others, we, we sometimes encounter the skepticism of the neighbors that this man encountered. The neighbors who say, that's impossible. There's no way that a living God, or there's no way that God is living, or there's no way that God could be the God that you describe. Sometimes when you share Jesus, you might encounter the apathy of the parents or the indifference. Have you ever had those moments? And I think these often are the hardest people to reach. Those moments where you share your testimony or what Jesus has done and you get an answer like, that's nice. I'm so happy for you. Or some sort of indifferent response like that. The third group that I think we often encounter are those who are violently opposed I want nothing to do with Jesus or his church. And when we encounter those different situations, I think sometimes we can feel intimidated or overwhelmed because we don't feel like we have the answers. But I want to help us today and say, friends, we have the most significant and powerful thing we will ever need when we encounter anyone from any walk of life who brings any opposition towards us. We have this, the testimony that Jesus has transformed our lives. 
The testimony that we have encountered an extraordinary Savior who has turned our life upside down. We can say exactly what this blind man said when he was facing the opposition and the violence from those Pharisees. He said this. He said, this is the only thing I know. I once was blind, but now I see. And friends, that's our testimony. And let me say, that's not all we have. That is everything that we have. Don't see that as, oh my goodness, that's all. No, that is all you need. The testimony of the fact that Jesus is alive and he has transformed our lives. I was blind, but now I see. I was dead, but now I'm alive. I've encountered an extraordinary savior and I have been transformed by him. And that's the series that we are gonna be starting. My job today is to introduce the, the next eight weeks of the series called Transformed by Jesus, Ordinary Encounters with an Extraordinary God. We're going to learn over the next eight weeks that no encounter with Jesus goes according to the script. And when I say the script, I'm not meaning God's script. I mean, I'm meaning the script that we have, the sense of plan or organization that we think is going to happen, the, the sense of trying to get us, what we try to do is try to get God to fit into our paradigm. We're going to learn how God breaks the mold through his son, Jesus. Matthew chapter 9, next week, we're going to learn the story of how Jesus heals the paralyzed man. You read any of the, I don't know how many healing stories there are in the Bible, 30 to 40 healing accounts in the Bible. Not one healing account is the same as the other. Jesus healed every single person in a completely different and unique way. The point is not the method of healing. The point is God's desire to heal. And even if you narrow that down to the issue of faith and you try and appropriate faith to healing, we're gonna learn next week that God, Jesus, responds to every kind of faith. Jesus responds to great faith. Jesus heals despite little faith or no faith. And in the accounts of the paralyzed man, Jesus heals because of the faith of his friends. There's no one size fits all to how God encounters people. It's different and unique in every way. The week after that, we're going to learn out of John chapter 3 how Jesus patiently, lovingly, carefully, wisely, tenderly leads a Pharisee, a, 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 a religious seeker, in the understanding of what it means to be born again by the Spirit of God. A Pharisee. The same Pharisees that you can read in the Gospels where Jesus on a good day calls them liars and hypocrites and serpents and blind fools. And that's when he's being considerate with his, the choice of words that he has. But yet in John chapter 3, he comes patiently and lovingly and carefully leads this man into relationship with him. We're going to learn other stories about the young man in Mark chapter 10 who has everything. You, I'm sure you're familiar with that. Most of you are familiar with that, that account. The, the young man who claims he has obeyed all of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus says, you may well have done that, but I'm asking you to do one more thing. I want you to give away everything that you have. And the man walks away disappointed because he knows he can't do that. And what is most remarkable about that story is that Jesus doesn't chase after him. And say, well, you know what? That was a little harsh. I'm sorry. Uh, let, let me just backtrack a little bit. How about you give... 20% of what you have. No, Jesus says he's not ready to yet to enter into the kingdom of God. 
your mind is blown. Like, my goodness, that's not how, that's not the script that we believe Jesus should follow. We're going to learn about how Jesus has compassion on the social outcast, the woman with the issue of bleeding in Luke 8. We're going to learn about how Jesus in Mark chapter 12 refutes the, the, those who debate, want to debate with Jesus. We're going to learn how Jesus sets the demonized man free in Luke chapter 8. And we're going to learn how Jesus restores the dignity of the woman at the well. You see, every encounter with Jesus in the Gospels, every encounter, every one of you sitting here who's had an encounter with Jesus, every one of your friends and family members and business colleagues who you are trusting would have an encounter with Jesus, I want to say this, every single person is different. Every single personal history is different. Every single fear and struggle and hurt and difficulty is different. Every single hope and dream and desire and longing and gifting is different. Therefore, every encounter with Jesus needs to be different and is different. We, when we go through this series, when we learn about these things, I don't, I don't want us as a church to be looking for that method or that silver bullet, that, 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 that one key that will unlock everything. What I'm trusting, what I've been praying for, not just today, but for the next eight weeks, is that God would begin to stir our hearts with faith, that, 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 God, uh, that, that, that we would understand the, the extent to which God desires that none be lost. I think if we just got a, an appearance of the likeness of the extent to which God desires that none be lost. I think it would change the way we live. That's the better prayer I've been praying these last few weeks for myself. God, show me your love. Show me your love. Not just for me, but for those that in the world would consider unlovable or the church would consider unlovable. Show us your love, Father the extent to which you would want none of them to perish. Christianity is not a system of principles that needs to be religiously obeyed. Christianity is not a system of rules that needs to be rigorously followed. Christianity is not a theology that needs to be intellectually understood. Christianity is a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ that needs to be cultivated and enjoyed And that's who we are sharing over these, that's who we are going to be learning about, and that's who we want to share with the city. Not an ethical, moral code, but the person of Jesus Christ who brings life and life everlasting. I love the fact that in Jesus, this unknowable God, the Bible speaks about God being unknowable. I love the fact that in Jesus, This unknowable God, this God who we cannot even fathom or begin to understand intellectually in our our minds, Jesus makes this unknowable God knowable. Paul prays the most remarkable prayer in in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 19, Paul prays this. He says, I pray that you will know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Just, just, take, just take 10 seconds to think on that for a moment. Paul prays that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I and mean, he prays an impossible prayer. 
how do, we, how do we get to know love that surpasses knowledge? Well, I'll tell you how. In the person of Jesus. Everything that is unknowable about God, everything that is beyond our intellect about God is completely accessible in the person of Jesus. Everything that is beyond us logically makes sense somehow relationally when we know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We live in a culture and a day and age that, that has elevated knowledge. And I want to say, friends, it's to our detriment. We need to be clear as to what the Bible teaches, but know that we're never going to figure God out. It is through relationship with His Son that we get to know who God is. So what I want to do for the last kind of 10 or 15 minutes is I want to talk about or share with you my four favorite paradoxes. My four favorite apparent contradictions about this extraordinary savior that most of us in this room have encountered that blow our mind intellectually, yet at the same time are reasons for worship and adoration. Friends, some people will think that because we can't figure God out, that's an area for concern. And I want to say, because we can't figure God out, that's a reason to worship him. I don't want to worship a God that can fit into this brain. There are incredible limits to what this brain can conceive or think of. And a God that neatly fits into this brain is not a God who is worthy of worship. The fact that God appears to, to just blow my mind and I'll never fully grasp him, yet in Jesus I know him relationally, is a gold mine for me when it comes to worship. And that's what happens to Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28. After getting this miraculous vision, he falls down on his face because he's worshiping this God who he is just all he has seen is the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And God begins to speak to him. So four things, four paradoxes about this extraordinary Savior that many of us have encountered. And I want today just to be an opportunity for us to revel in the greatness of the God that we serve. Some I'm going to spend some time on, some I'm going to rush through fairly quickly. The first one, Jesus, who is this extraordinary Savior? He is the Lion of Judah and the Lamb that was slain. We sang that song this morning, one of my all-time favorite songs. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and he is Juba. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Lamb who was slain. I'm from Africa. I'm from, South, well, I'm from South Africa, and let me tell you, I've seen lions. Lions and lambs, they don't mix. They don't go together. Lions and pretty much anything don't go together, but particularly lions and lambs. But the Bible teaches that Jesus is both lion and lamb. And can I just say as an aside, with each of these paradoxes, please don't see this as God, oh, Jesus, when he is 95% lion, he's 5% lamb. Or when he's 55% lamb, he's 45% lion. It's not like a seesaw, or as I asked my daughter, a teeter-totter, apparently, is how Americans say seesaw. He's not like, it's not like a seesaw of, of, of opposing truths. Jesus is 100% lion and 100% lamb. No, Revelation chapter 5, verse 5 to 6 says this. John is, gets this vision of Jesus and he says, Then I heard one of the elders say to me, Do not weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb 
looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Look at what verse 5 says. Verse 5 says, I, I heard one of the angels say to me, I heard one of the angels say to me, do not weep, the lion is victorious. So John, John has his back, as it were, to the vision, and he hears an angel say, the lion is victorious. And I can imagine John turning, ready to see this magnificent lion on the throne. Instead, he turns and he sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain. You see, Jesus is both lion and lamb. Jesus governs the universe as the lion of the tribe of Judah, roaring in victory and in power over sin, sickness, and death. And Jesus governs at the same time this universe as the sacrificial lamb who paid the ultimate price that you and I might come into the experience of the reality of the freedom that he has won for us on the cross. Jesus is lion and lamb. Secondly, Jesus is the warrior stained in blood, yet he is also a suffering servant who would never snuff out a smoldering wick. And we get this truth from the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is this apparent book of contrasts. The first, Isaiah 40 to chapter 55, Isaiah receives this download from heaven of this picture of of Jesus being the suffering servant. He actually goes on to say, if we were to see Jesus in the streets, we wouldn't even recognize him. And even if we did, he would be so disfigured that we would turn away and we couldn't look upon him. But yet in chapter 56, all the way through to the end of Isaiah, he begins to describe this victorious God who rides forth victoriously with with eyes of blazing fire. And I'm sure, I actually feel sorry for Isaiah. I'm sure he probably was thinking to himself, this can't be the same person. Jesus is both victorious warrior, suffering servant. Isaiah 42 says this, here is my servant whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout out or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. You see, many of us here today probably are even sensing or feeling or needing something of that tenderness and that gentleness and that understanding and that compassion and that patience that Jesus can bring. And I want to say he can do that because it tells us right there, the passage we've read, he is a suffering servant. When he sees a bruised reed, he won't throw it out. When he sees a smoldering wick, he's not going to snuff you out. He's going to tenderly, gently bring you back to the fullness of who you are called to be. But at the same time, there are some of you sitting here who who are feeling opposed and oppressed by the devil. And I want to say, as much as Jesus is the suffering servant, he is also the victorious one, stained in blood, as Isaiah 63 says. Who is this coming from Edom with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forth in greatness of his strength? It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. That's who Jesus is, the tender gentle, suffering servant who understands and is patient with you and the victorious, glorious King of kings and Lord of lords who sweeps everyone and everything before him as he strides out victoriously. That's the God that we serve. Thirdly, he is Jesus, our high priest, scapegoat, and sacrificial lamb all in one. 
Now, this is a, a, bit, a massive topic that I only have two or three minutes to, to teach on. But essentially, in Leviticus chapter 16, a beautiful picture is described of, of the nation of Israel coming together to worship God. But before they can do that, in the Old Testament uh, uh, pattern, there needed to be a sacrifice made in order for Israel to enter into the presence of God. And so what they would do was they would have a high priest who would represent God before the people and the people before God. And the high priest would gather two goats. They would cast lots, depending on, and depending on which lot fell with which goat, one goat would be taken by the high priest into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God, where only he could go once a year. The entire nation of Israel were outside, and, and, and the high priest would, would, in the presence of God, slaughter this goat as, a, as an atonement sacrifice to, to wipe away the sins of Israel. Mean, meanwhile, the nation of Israel are, are the, on the outside going, well, we can't see what's going on inside there. You know, what, what is actually happening? I mean, we don't know. And so the high priest comes out, and in order to give a visual to the nation of Israel, they would take the second goat. It was called the scapegoat. And the high priest would lay his hands on the head of the goat, and he would, he would impart or, or, or kind of release somehow, declare over this goat the sins of the nation of Israel. You know, whatever they are, he would declare them over the sins, declare them over the goat, and the entire nation would lead the goat out to the city gates and release it into the desert and watch their sins disappear. You see, the reality is, the book of Hebrews tells us Jesus is the high priest, he's the sacrificial lamb, and he's the scapegoat all in one. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that Jesus is the great high priest who represents us before God and represents God before us. He's the great high priest who, who, who isn't annoyed or frustrated in our, with our weakness, as Hebrews 4 says, but as we, as we tuck ourselves close to the high priest, we can actually enter into the Holy of Holies, that place where in the Old Testament only one high priest could go once a year. Hebrews 4 tells us in Jesus, you and I can enter boldly into the presence of Jesus into the presence of the Father, come before the throne of grace to receive mercy and help in our time of need. Jesus is our high priest. But Jesus is also our sacrificial lamb. That, that, that goat that was, that was a, 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 a killed, that goat that was sacrificed to wipe away the sins of the world, Hebrews chapter 10 tells us Jesus is that sacrificial lamb, that once and for all sacrifice that, that, that removes our sin from us and God remembers them no more. Just warning you, there's going to be a bang. And I'm warning my wife more than anyone because she hates bangs. But here are my, sacri- here are my goats. I brought four along just in case two of them didn't make it all the way here. So here are four goats. There should really only be two. And we're going to have a, this is going to be our sacrificial lamb. This represents the goat, the lamb. Everyone's closing their ears. <laughs> the goats or the lamb on which our sins were placed. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is, Hebrews 10, Jesus is that once and for all sacrifice. That God remembers our sin no more. I mean, think about that. The God of the heavens and the earth. The God who spoke creation into being is forgetful about one thing. He's forgetful about our sins. That's remarkable. <laughs> Can never figure that out. 
but it's what the Bible teaches. But not only that, it tells us that Jesus, Hebrews chapter 13, that Jesus is also our scapegoat. And Hebrews chapter 13 tells how what happened when Jesus was crucified on the cross was the entire city, the entire city of Jerusalem came and they began to scorn and they began to ridicule and they began to mock Jesus. They began to heap on him disgrace upon disgrace and shame and guilt and shame and every single bit, every bit of shame and guilt. And they drove him out of the city so that he would be crucified on a hill far away. You see, Jesus, because he's the sacrificial lamb, not only removes the power of sin, but Jesus, because he's our scapegoat, removes the stain of sin. Our guilt and our shame is removed far away. I don't want you to all follow me, but I'm going to release this helium balloon outside. And if you came outside with me, you'd see that that balloon has disappeared and flown up into the, into the sky, never to be seen again. And that's what Jesus has done with our sin, with not only with our sin, but with our guilt and shame. So many of us are sitting here riddled with guilt and shame over, sacrifice, over sins that we've committed. And I want to say to you today, Jesus has set you free of that. He's your high priest who is sympathetic. He's your sacrificial lamb who's paid the price to break the power of sin. And he's your scapegoat. And he has removed your shame and guilt so that you can live in freedom. Lastly, and we nearly finished, Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. John chapter 1 verse 14 says that the word came from, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and and truth. Friends, grace and truth are not opposing uh, 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 terms. Tr- the truth of God and the, and the unmerited, unearned favor of God are not terms to be opposing one another. Jesus was all truth. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for being religious. Jesus told his disciples every day to pick up their cross and to carry it in, 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 and follow him. Jesus spoke about hell more than he did about heaven. But Jesus was all grace. Jesus ate with the sinners. Jesus healed the lepers. Jesus set the criminal free from the cross. We need Jesus, who is all grace and all truth all of the time. Anything less is neither. Anything less than all grace and all truth is neither grace nor truth. We need the direction of truth to know where to go. John chapter 8, Jesus says, he says, uh, you need to remain in my word. You need to remain in the truth of my word. And then once you know the word, the truth will set you free. We need the direction of truth to know where to go. But we need the grace of truth to enable us to get there. Come to me, Matthew 11, Jesus says, all who are weary and find rest for your souls. Jesus is the lion and the lamb. He's the blood-stained warrior and the suffering servant. He's the high priest, the scapegoat, and the sacrificial lamb all in one. He's the one who came full of grace and truth. I want to submit to you, this is the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. We might not understand it. 
We might not fully comprehend it, but this is the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. One last question, why? Why is, is, is Jesus all of these things? Why is he all of these things? And I would put it to you, it's because Jesus desires that none should perish, but everyone come into relationship with him in order to be set free. Every good sermon is meant to end with an application. And I want to put it to you. I want to encourage you maybe to go home this week and to do one thing. You can do other things, but this is the one thing I want you to do from this sermon. I invite you to pray for your friends who do not know Jesus. Pray for your business colleagues who do not know Jesus or your family members. But I invite you to pray this, that Jesus would reveal himself in a unique way that they need in order to be transformed by him. Pray that your friends would encounter Jesus in a unique way that would enable them to be transformed by him. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the freedom that comes as we surrender and submit ourselves to the truth of your word. Lord, I just am blown away by that wonderful verse in John 8. Remain in my word, you say to us, Jesus. Remain in the truth of my word. And then, then you will, then you will know the truth. Then you will know my word. And the truth will set you free. We are desperate to live in the fullness and the totality of what freedom means, Lord Jesus. I pray, Lord, over these next eight weeks as a church, we would learn the liberty and the freedom that comes as we live in truth and as we revel in your magnificent grace. Even now, Holy Spirit, we just open our hearts to you and we ask that you would fill us with your presence, that you would touch us, Lord God. Thank you for your peace. Thank you for your rest. Thank you for your love that is in this place. We echo what Paul prays, Lord, that we would know the love that surpasses knowledge and understanding. Fill us, Lord. Fill us, Lord. Touch us, Jesus. Can we just stay in this place for a moment or two longer? I'm gonna call Chris up in a couple minutes or a couple moments just to come and facilitate ministry. Just can we, 30 seconds or a minute longer, not rushing off, not thinking about what is to come after this meeting. Can we fix our thoughts and our hearts towards Jesus? Ask him for his peace and his love to fill your heart, to overflow. Thank him for his faithfulness 
as Kristen so wonderfully shared with us this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you've broken the power of sin. Maybe some of you here are just under the, the weight of cycles of repetitive sin. And I just want to say over you today, God, through his son Jesus, has broken the power of sin. Maybe some of you are battling with the guilt or the shame that comes with falling short of what you think God's will is. I want you to picture that red balloon. Jesus, removing our shame. Removing that shame off of us. Even now, Lord, I pray, just lift off those weights. Lift weights off of people's shoulders, Lord. Set hearts free this morning, Lord. Guilt and shame be gone in Jesus' name. Lord, let your rest and peace come. The Bible says there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Just as you stay in that place, last, last moment, anyone here today who has never surrendered their hearts to Jesus, anyone maybe visiting here today for the first time or maybe you've come a few weeks, you've never given your heart to Jesus, but maybe something today, something of, of, of Jesus' kind of heart has grabbed hold of yours and you are saying, today I want to surrender my life to Jesus. As Chris releases ministry right now, I'm going to be up front. It would be my honor and privilege to pray with you this morning. I would love for you to come forward, to introduce yourself, and I would love to pray with you and lead you in a prayer where you are able to receive Jesus into your heart as Lord and Savior. Chris, do you want to come up and facilitate things? Thanks. Thanks.